Tonight I invite you to turn in God's Word to Luke chapter 19, page 878 in Bibles there in front of you. Luke chapter 19. We'll be looking at the account of Zacchaeus tonight. I mentioned him last week in connection with the Eighth Commandment. And if you want to turn to Lord's Day 42, we'll be referencing that toward the uh, very end, at the very end of the sermon as we think about uh, the life of Zacchaeus and how he is transformed by God's grace. God is able to do that which is impossible, and that is to set us free from sin. As we remember the context of of this story, remember that Luke has been investigating all of these matters that he's heard about that he might give uh, account to Theophilus, that he might explain to uh, Theophilus that all that he's heard of the Lord Jesus indeed happened. And the context here is Luke following Uh, uh, Jesus as he goes along and he has just had conversation with, uh, Jesus has just had conversation with the rich young ruler. Then he tells his disciples that he's about to go to Jerusalem to die. It is necessary for him to do so. And then he heals a blind uh, beggar. And then he comes to this man who is hated by nearly everyone because of his life's work. We're talking about Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. Listen to the account in Luke's gospel this evening, starting Luke 19, verse 1. This is the word of God. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So far the reading of God's own holy word. May he add his blessing to the reading and proclamation of it. This evening, your congregation, the central theme of the gospel, according to Luke, is found there in verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Those who are dead in sin. Those who are helpless, without hope. The gospel, roughly organized, is this way. Chapters 1 through 3, Jesus comes into the world. Chapters 4 through 21, Jesus seeks. And then chapters 22... To 24, Jesus saves. Luke lays it out very uh, roughly. That's an outline, but, but quite helpfully to us. He comes, and then he seeks, and then he shows that he is successful in what he has come to do, namely to save. Luke's intent on presenting these facts very clearly, according to investigation, we see that the opening of Luke's gospel, he says this to Theophilus, that you might be sure of what you've been taught. 
God wants the word to to be impressed upon us that this is indeed what his son has done and that we can hope and have confidence in him. Jesus really did desire to see all people set free from sin, from this self, uh, super confident, self-righteous, rich ruler that we see in the previous chapter to the one who least expected that he or she should be forgiven of sin, even a chief tax collector. What we have in this story of Jesus and Zacchaeus is God doing the impossible. I want us to look at the context for a moment. So we're going to go back into chapter 18. Uh, the, the rich young ruler had come to Jesus and asked him a number of questions uh, or was in pressing him for answers. And Jesus saw that the man was not coming to him. And he said, it is difficult. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, verse 24 of Luke 18. Indeed, he says that this seems almost impossible. The disciples say, who can be saved if not this man? And Jesus says, ah, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The young ruler was wealthy, perhaps a synagogue ruler in the town. So he had not only Wealth, but he also had a high moral standing. He was one who was a, a righteous person in, insofar as we could tell from the outside, keeping the laws as he makes clear uh, to, to Jesus. And he's got this question, how, how, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What is it that I must do? And Jesus reminded this rich ruler of the commandments He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the man replies very boldly, all these I have kept since I was a child. That's a pretty bold statement. But those around him would think, oh, well, that's why he was the synagogue ruler. He was one who was very, very holy, very moral. And... Jesus thought, well, Jesus said very clearly then, well, if, if, this, if that's the case, if you've kept them all, let's go right back to the first commandment and address that very heart of the believer's life. He says, you have one thing that you must yet do. Sell everything that you have. Sell everything. If the man's keeping God's law, well, then this certainly would be, be following that. Well, okay, I have no other gods. I have nothing else that I, that I lean upon or that I'm holding on to. And so Jesus says, sell everything you have. One thing you still lack. Jesus saw the man's heart. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Treasure in heaven. Proper priority. What is first? Where do we set our hearts? How do we live? It is with God first. And what do we read? Verse 23, when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. but not toward God. 
is what we are to hear in this statement. Extremely rich, but sad when he's told, ah, sell everything, give to the poor, and then come and follow me. Set your eyes and your steps in my way, in my path. Jesus then says, how difficult, after seeing how the man went away sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are surprised at Jesus' words. If this rich moral ruler can't be saved, then who can? They say in verse 26, and Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. We're being, we're, we're, we're being set, uh, prepared for what Jesus is about to do in coming to Zacchaeus, who also was a very rich man, who was a lover of money, but one in whom God was working the impossible. The disciples had reasoned, after all, that this rich ruler must, and his position of authority must mean that God is blessing him. That was the thinking that if the man is wealthy, that if the man is a ruler, then he's blessed of God. He must, he must be, have favor with God. We hear that today. There's, there, there are many people, many teachers who, who present that teaching. That if you do what's right, God will give you all that your heart desires. And then they focus us here on earth. All the riches, all the wealth. Well, Jesus is about to blow their minds and to expand their categories when he comes there to Jericho. In chapter 19, we come back. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. A man there who wanted to see Jesus. Jesus had just healed a blind man. The previous verses at the end of chapter 18, this one who said, I want to regain my sight. There's a, that's a loaded statement there as Jesus gives him his sight and he praises God and the people are amazed. He sees and that opening of his eyes is something that we ought to recognize God wants to do for us. To open our eyes to where we truly ought to be rich. Rich toward, towards God. As Jesus comes into Jericho with his disciples, they're about to see what true sight looks like in one who is understood to be the most blind to good, even a chief tax collector. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and was rich. Luke connects it with, the, with this account of Jesus and the rich young ruler. If you, were, if you were to play a word association game in that day with the people in Zacchaeus' day, if they said... Another word for thief, they would have said tax collector. Another, one for, another word for a robber, tax collector. Another word for chief sinner, tax collector. In the minds of the disciples, here is a man beyond the reach of God. A chief sinner, a lover of money, a rotten thief, if ever there was one. 
The chief tax collector set the tolls and set the taxes for all the goods that would come through the town. And Jericho was, a, was a, a large, on a large trade route. And so these, these, these men would, 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 would build up mountains of, of money. And they were despised by the people. Because they worked not only for Rome, but they also worked for themselves. Zacchaeus was over the other tax collectors. He was a leader of the tax collectors. A, this is a, a word that only appears once in the New Testament, but it is, it is speaking of one who is over other tax collectors, one who sits in his dark little basement counting the money as it comes in, not having to face the people. And if we look back to chapter 18, verse 11, we see what the, what the religious people thought of them. Jesus tells another parable, this of a Pharisee, and he, here he puts into the mouths of this Pharisee of his, in his parable what they think of tax collectors. The Pharisee was standing by himself praying and saying thus to God, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, oh yes, all that was bad enough, and or even like this tax collector. Almost spitting as he says it. This is their perspective. Zacchaeus, a tax collector, worse than an adulterer, worse than extortioner, the unjust. Jesus himself and his teaching compared tax collectors to pagans. That's rather interesting. Matthew 18, when he's talking about how we should uh, uh, forgive one another and go to each other, if one, or rather to, to address another person's sin, if they won't listen, when you take it to the church, he says, uh, let, them be to you, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. There was a notion in, 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 in people's minds that tax collector, you know, those people who are, are irreligious and who are, who are just the, the picture of what it means to be a sinner. Based on this, the crowd's perspective of Zacchaeus isn't surprising. This is societal norm that tax collectors, in fact, that tax collectors would use their position of power for the benefit of themselves and would render people powerless and were despised. But this chief tax collector is different. He had sought money. He was a lover of money. But here he was seeking Jesus. What he lacked in stature, which kept him from seeing Jesus, he made up for in determination. What he couldn't get past perhaps in the minds of the, of the society, too, that he couldn't come to see Jesus. They, it was almost as if they were blocking him out. The crowd wouldn't, wouldn't let him press through. What he couldn't make up for, what he couldn't do in coming to Jesus, he made up for in strategy. He said, I will do everything I can. I will determine to see Jesus. Because he couldn't see Jesus, he ran ahead and climbed a tree because he wanted to see who Jesus was. Verse 3. What a marked contrast between the rich ruler, the previous chapter, and this rich man who wanted to see who Jesus was, to learn more about him. And then something really surprising happens. Impossible to imagine. Jesus passes that way and he looks up 
and he calls out to this chief tax collector by name. No indication that he knew this man or that he had heard of Zacchaeus, but he calls out to him, Zacchaeus. And it really struck me as I read this passage, and I think we should understand that what Luke is trying to say or what Luke is, is trying to communicate here is that though Jesus had never met this man, he knew him by name. And then he says something preposterous. He says, hurry, come down, for I must go to your house today. <laughs> the crowd that was following him started grumbling. The word there in the original is they were grumbling loud enough to be heard. What? Can you believe this, that he would go to be a guest of such a wretch, such a sinner? We're trying to follow this guy, but we can't follow. I mean, there, there's, there's a limit. This, this is unbelievable. He's robbed us, this tax collector. Jesus says things in other parts of his ministry, doesn't he, where he says, you know who the real thief is? It's the, it's the devil. He wants to steal from you that which is your greatest possession, that is a relationship with the Lord. He wants you to not love the Lord. He wants you to turn from the Lord. He said the thief comes in to rob and to destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full, that they might be rich. John 10, 10. Another word struck me as I was going through this passage. Hurry. Hurry and come down. Jesus was never in a hurry. He would stop to talk with people, though he was moving here, and the disciples were dragging him along. Jesus, we've got to go. It's, it's time. We've got to keep moving. And Jesus was, was not above slowing down to talk and make connection with people. But here he says to Zacchaeus, hurry. He knew his time was short. He wanted not only Zacchaeus to know what he had come to do, but others to see the effects of what he was coming to do in the person of Zacchaeus. Hurry and come down, for I must, it is necessary for me to go to your house. For he wanted to teach Zacchaeus what he was doing, and the people as well. The despised thief hurried down, it says in the text, and received Jesus with joy. The Lord doesn't want us to wait to come to him. He wants us to hurry to come to him. And to know that he is our greatest treasure. Something had happened here in Zacchaeus' heart. He's filled with joy toward Jesus. He wants to know who Jesus is. He wants to hear what Jesus has to say. He wanted to meet Jesus. He knew that he had sinned greatly. And he wanted to find out from Jesus what to do with his guilt. Couldn't get rid of it with all the money. It was there. It was continually before him. All the money in the world wasn't giving him peace. This is the heart of the believing sinner when Jesus comes calling. There's joy in him for there's forgiveness. Jesus did not blast Zacchaeus for his sin. He doesn't recount that sin. He did not start in by telling Zacchaeus all about his sinful life. Zacchaeus knew his guilt. The people around him knew what he had done. Jesus had come to reveal God's rich grace extending to the least and to the lost. He has come to give life and to give it abundantly, richly, to the full. 
And the people needed to see this. Jesus had said to the disciples' question back in chapter 18, who then can be saved? He said, it is difficult. Indeed, with man it is impossible for him to be saved. But with God, all things are possible. Indeed, Jesus declared that salvation had come to Zacchaeus, that he had become a son of Abraham, a son of the inheritance. Verse 9, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. How did he know? That's what we want to look at. How did he know? Well, Zacchaeus declared him to be Lord. That's the first thing we see. He says as he stands up in his house, Behold, Lord, I will give half of all all that I have to the poor. Behold, Lord, you are Lord of my life. And that makes a difference. It's going to change the way I look at the world and the way I look at the needs around me. You are Lord. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Lord, I no longer want to steal. I no longer want to take from others, but want to be aware of the needs of those around me. What does God require of you in this commandment? That I do whatever I can and may for my neighbor's good, that I treat others as I would like them to treat me, that I work faithfully so that I may help the needy in their hardship. Lord, The lordship of Jesus Christ in Zacchaeus' life is seen quickly in his words and actions. The first commandment, you are to have no other gods before me. And Zacchaeus says, yes, Lord, I now understand that. I see that and I want to display it in my life. No other gods. Secondly, Zacchaeus confessed his sin. He confessed that he was a sinner, a thief. Behold, Lord, what I have defrauded, I restore. When Jesus came into his home, into his life, he stood and made clear proclamation that he was restoring fourfold what he had stolen from those around him. Very often when we're thinking about justice, we're thinking about things being made right. We think about what others owe us. We remember all those sins committed against us. And to be sure, we are sinned against. But the only sins that we can confess are our own. And Zacchaeus gives example of that. Lord, where I have sinned, I seek to give restitution as a sign not as, a, not as a marker for my place in heaven. Well, if I just give enough, then I'll be sure of getting in. No, but as a marker that you are Lord of my life, that I no longer want to live according to my way of thinking, but in the way of the kingdom. The only sin we can confess is our own, the sin that makes us guilty before God. We must come to him to find forgiveness for personal sin. Jesus coming into Zacchaeus' home, into his life, led him to have such great joy that he promised to restore more than the law prescribed. Old Testament law required the amount taken plus a fifth. Zacchaeus was restoring in greater amount required for theft, according to Exodus chapter 22. He was returning and fourfold. He was going beyond what the law called for.
Zacchaeus was coming to Jesus in faith and repentance. That is what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. People today say, well, I believe in Jesus. Sure. I believe in a lot of other things too, they'll say. And, and, but Jesus is one of the most important, I think, in my life. Maybe, I think. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I believe in him. And he says, come and follow me. And they say, well, yeah, sure. Yeah. As, as, as well as my neighbor does. You know, I don't want to be ahead of the line. I don't want to, I don't want to overdo it. I don't want to be overly zealous, you know. Somebody might say, oh, what are you trying to do? Trying to, trying to get to the front of the line according to merit? No. When we come to Jesus believing, there is repentance. And we're not keeping anyone else in mind to say, oh, I'm going to stay ahead of that person in repentance. I just want to make sure that I do more things, more good things than that other person because then I know that at least if nobody else feels good about me, I feel good about me. But you see, when we put faith in Jesus, we're trusting him. What are we trusting him to do to save us from sin? We acknowledge that we need him to save us from our sin. And so we articulate that sin. Not because he doesn't know what it is. Not because God doesn't know what it is. But so that we might see what our idols are. So that we might cast them away. As we show our love and our faith in Jesus Christ. John Murray writes, the faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith, a repenting faith. And the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. If we say we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we repent of our sin and we, and we, we turn away from it. Th- those go together. It's impossible to repent without believing knowing what to repent of, and it's, or to believe without repenting. It's impossible to believe without repenting. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you repent of your sins and you say, Lord, I, I don't have anything to bring. Everything that I've, that, that I've done sets me at odds with you, but, but you say, come, and so I come, and, and I confess my sin. And I say, save me in keeping with your, with your abundant, your rich grace. I love to tell the story of Jesus and his love. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. The law convicts of sin, but it also points the way to new life. True repentance consists of dying to the old self, living uh, according to the new self. That's earlier in the catechism. Question and answers 88 to 90. What's involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things. The dying away of the old self, the coming to life of the new. It is being genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it, to run from it. And then what is the rising to life of the new self? Wholehearted joy. There's joy in repenting of just letting it go and saying, I am no longer going to be burdened by that. Because the Lord says I can bring it and be, it can be that burden off of my back as pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, as Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Wholehearted joy in God through Christ. Love and delight to live according to the will of God doing every kind of good work. Zacchaeus calls him Lord. Jesus says, I see something 
has happened. He confesses. Jesus says, I see something has happened. Do the people see? Do they acknowledge? We don't know. We don't hear whether they continued to grumble or if they understood what was happening. Then, thirdly, we see a joy in that confessing. Something has happened. Jesus and everyone around heard the joy in Zacchaeus' voice. He knew forgiveness and it brought him joy. True repentance is accompanied by joy. We're told that we talk, when talking about sin, it brings sadness. And to be sure, we ought to grieve over sin. But the psalmist also says that, that we grieve for a time, but joy comes in the morning. We know that as we come from the darkness of sin, as we confess it and grieve over it, we can find joy in God's forgiving grace. Zacchaeus' joy in Christ's presence led to his letting go of what he loved more than God and recognizing that he had not only, not only offended God, but in his process in disobeying God, he's, he's, he's harming his neighbor. He's keeping from his neighbor. Those two tables of law, they go together. If you love God, then you're going to love your neighbor. You're going to see that you have no other God in your life. Then it's going to flow forth in the way that you love others, the way that you live for them, not withholding from them. He declares, half of my goods I give to the poor. It's meant a number of things. It meant that love of money had been replaced with a radical generosity. It also meant that he must have had a lot of money. A lot of money. If he can give away half to the poor and then still restore fourfold to those whom he has wronged. Why do I make that point? Because when we have a lot of money, it makes us real comfortable with the lifestyle it brings. Well, I can't, I can't give too much because then I'll have to let this go. I may not be able to do that. I can't do the things that I want to do for me. Can you imagine giving away half of your money and being happy about it? I'd panic like a... I, I would, I'd say, okay, now, how are we going to handle this? Uh, the, 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 what happens? The, you know, re, what happened to rainy day fund? What, what are we going to do now? What, what's the future hold? What if this happens? What if that? I don't think I can do it. Sweaty palms. He gives away half. And he says, and, and if, now the, now the word there, if, is, is as commentators say, not that Zacchaeus was, was saying he hadn't, but he said, in, 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 in each of the instances, I'm going to listen to where I have defrauded. And if indeed it's determined that I have defrauded, I will give back. He's not saying that I'm, I'm hedging my bets. He's saying, there are going to be people coming, and they're going to say, yeah, you owe me this, and you owe me that. You took, do you remember that bill? Oh, do you happen to have that bill? No, but I know you owed me. And, and so he, he, wants to, he wants to acknowledge that it's in keeping with, with record. But he says, I, I want to do this. I'm freer than I've ever felt before. And this in stark contrast to what Jesus says in chapter 18, how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 24, chapter 18. How difficult. It is very difficult because we get attached We've got to have a certain bit set aside. And in most cases, it's not a bit, it's a lot. 
The rich young ruler proved that by turning away from Jesus, it's hard. He was sad over the call to turn from that life that he had come, grown accustomed to to now give to the poor and follow Jesus. Zacchaeus showed a radical generosity. Now, we're not taking Zacchaeus as a principle for how much of our possessions we must give away, but this narrative must shake our modern sensibilities where we have all of these things in place that somehow attack faith and somehow uh, uh, make our faith to shrivel because, well, you know, if this happens, we've got this fund over here. If this happens, we, we can kind of pull from here. And, and, and it's much easier to say, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm sitting pretty good. I, I think I, I got this. We're wealthier than any previous generation, yet we're more worried about finances today than we have ever been, if you look at the statistics. We hold on to large amounts of money. One of the commentators I was reading this week said, wrote, wrote something that I think is very helpful, how a person uses their money as one of the best indicators of his or her spiritual condition. How strong is our faith? How does it show in the way that we hold on to material things which can be stolen, which moth and rust can destroy, as Jesus says? Are we rich toward the kingdom, toward God? What does God require of us in the Eighth Commandment? That I do whatever I can and may for my neighbor's good, answer 111. The rich young ruler could not be saved by his money. He could not be saved by his self-righteousness. Here Jesus showed that a chief thief could be saved by grace. There is no other way to be saved for apart from perfection. No one can come to God. We have to be reckoned righteous in Him. And when we are, that salvation is accompanied by a new way of looking at the world, at the things of the world. What joy we ought to have when we read about Zacchaeus. Because that means he can save me and he can save you. And when he does, that changes us. It causes us to let go of that which perishes and to cling to that which is our true joy. Salvation in Jesus Christ. To paraphrase Jim Elliott's words, he is no fool who lets go of what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. God gives and he does not take away. He says, hurry, come. For I want to be the center of your home. Amen. Let's pray. Your Father in heaven, what do we pursue? We are so thankful for gainful employment. We are so thankful for income. We are so thankful for the way that you provide. Give us thankful hearts. Give us also generous hearts that do not withhold from others what you would have us to give.
help us to give thought to how we hold on to material possessions, to determine our heart's allegiance. Are we rich toward the world and poor toward you, or are we rich toward you and therefore generous to the world? Lord, may we know the joy of generosity and the freeing effects of grace that we would not worry, be anxious. For truthfully, if we would, if we would be honest, we hear of what Zac- Zacchaeus did and we think if I had to do that, I would panic. Lord, you don't give us a, an amount here, but you do call us not to panic, not to worry, but to give generously and to trust, to follow. Help us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.